Here we are at the halfway mark, the end of five years into this decade that started in 1990, and it's time to look at some bands from 1994, plus a look at the alternative charts of that year. It's our usual yearly update. Welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. This week, we look at Magic Dirt, The Meanies, Max Sharam, and Rebecca's Empire. Magic Dirt were a band that typified the 90s Australian alternative music scene. Whatever the hell, etc, etc. They slung guitars and they had a healthy dollop of heavy with their rock. They had a charismatic front person that looked cool as hell. They didn't come from Sydney or Melbourne, but were still caught up in the insanity of the music business. And at one point, I would have put my pocket money on them not surviving the 90s. But they orchestrated one of the more surprising comebacks in Australian music. I mean, you just could never guess with Magic Dirt. Magic Dirt were formed in Geelong, a city just an hour away from Melbourne, but very much not Melbourne. They were Adelita Surzon on vocals and guitar, Dean Turner on bass, Daniel Herring on guitar, and Adam Robertson on drums. They were all young, late teens or early 20s. More importantly, they had formed in a post-Nirvana world, with Triple J on the radio and alternative bands everywhere you looked. They didn't luck into a changing scene, they were part of the reason the scene was changing. Amongst the people seeing alternative bands everywhere was Steve Stavrakis, also called Stav, and Steve Pavlovic, also called Pav. The two Steves, Stav and Pav, were deeply entrenched in the scene. Stav had been a key part of Waterfront Records, the store and the label. Pav was a tour promoter who was bringing out the coolest acts to Australia like Nirvana. Fellaheen was the name of the new label that the pair started in 1993. In Geelong at the time, there was a bit of a punk scene. All the bands shared members and mainly it was about having fun and making noise. Magic Dirt took that shambolic tendency with them when they played shows in Melbourne, where they looked great and sounded fierce. Pav signed them to Fellaheen for a single and gave them support slots for Sonic Youth and Pavement. Their first single for Fellaheen was called Super Tear. It was droney and noisy in very early 90s. Here's Magic Dirt with Super Tear. Of course, all the labels started to circle. Magic Dirt were hot property. They also had the very special source that is Adelita. In terms of star power, she was captivating live. You could just imagine how great Adelita would look on an album cover. Magic Dirt, to most of the industry, seemed like a diamond in the rough. Behind the scenes, there was a lot of turmoil. Adelita and Dean Turner were a couple, but they were always up and down. As a band, they were surrounded by people telling them what to do and how to be. This is where I think the Geelongness comes in. They were outsiders, but part of a scene that protected them. They never felt the need to conform, and in the 90s, not conforming was cool. 
Magic Dirt switched labels in 1993, jumping from Fellaheen, who were still a very small and boutique label, to the more established Agogo. That Melbourne label had some indie success in the 80s and was playing the alternative game in the 90s. Especially in Melbourne, they had the rep of being the coolest indie in town. Two Magic Dirt EPs followed. Signs of Satanic Youth in 1993 and Life Was Better in 1994. And while the first was a collection of songs from their live set, Life Was Better was a sensation. It has my favourite album cover from this period and it's what the Just Ace podcast artwork pays tribute to. They just look impossibly cool on the cover. Inside the EP, their noise experiments were developing into songs and actual radio singles, at least for Triple J. Ice was the big alternative hit from the album. From their 1994 EP, Life Was Better, he's Magic Dirt with Ice. Life Was Better did well, backed with critical acclaim, but they still weren't a hit band, possibly because they were still on a small label. Life Was Better is fantastic, and it's actually a little surprising that none of the songs from it made the Triple J Hottest 100 of that year. Still, the band was struggling to deal with all the attention. They actually broke up around this time, but then they ended up back together. The 1995 Big Day Out was a very important day for a bunch of bands, the word about great Australian music had gotten out internationally, and more and more people who worked for American labels were travelling to Australia. One was Jeffrey Weiss, who ran A&R for Warner Brothers in the US. Magic Dirt, UMI and Silverchair were the bands on the bill that all the labels most wanted. Weiss returned to America with two of them, UMI and Magic Dirt. Magic Dirt was so hot that they managed to negotiate the best possible contract. They got full creative control a big percentage of record sales. This is the opposite of the exploitative US label deals signed by Tumbleweed or Clouds or other bands like that. But that didn't turn out to be a good thing either. But we'll get to that. Work began on a debut album, with Warner in the US waiting. They worked with Paul McKercher, who had produced Silverchair and worked with UMI, The Cruel Sea, Tumbleweed and Spiderbait. The expectations were high. The album they delivered back to the label was Friends in Danger. It built on the noisier elements of their sound. One of the singles was Sparrow. Here's Sparrow by Magic Dirt.
loud guitars, muffled vocals, long songs. It was all good in 1991, and if your name was Sonic Youth, who'd never had a radio hit. This wasn't what Warner Brothers had paid for, and it wasn't 1991 anymore. That apparently good contract didn't help. Here's the problem with a contract that favours the band. The band manages to negotiate more money per album. That sounds good, right? Instead of $2, they might get $3 or even $4 an album. But that extra dollar or two comes from the record company's cut. But at some point, the record company realises they don't make as much money from you, so they stop working very hard on you. Then there's the creative control. Again, it sounds great for a band to have creative control, but rightly or wrongly, Record companies have suits that want to be invested in your success. If you don't let them in, they stop caring about you. Or maybe more accurately, they don't even think about you. There's other bands on the label that they need to work on. If you have it in your contract that you don't want the label to be involved, then there's nothing to say that the label needs to support you. Silverchair had a hit with Tomorrow and still re-recorded it for the Americans. It was a smart move to get them invested. Magic Dirt did the opposite of that. So basically, if you sign a bad deal with a label where you get no money or control, it's shit and you get screwed. But if you sign a good deal that makes you a lot of money and you get full control, it's shit and you get screwed. The house always wins. Magic Dirt refused to listen to Warners when it came to Friends in Danger. Warners didn't want to release it and was willing to give the band more studio time instead. Whether the band wanted to make something uncommercial or something to piss off the label, that has been speculated. Either way, the American label dumped the album out there with little support. They didn't take any singles to radio or spend any money on clips. The band went on a US tour with no label support, nothing on the radio and no publicity. Warner Music dropped the band shortly after. But the joke was on the label because they had to pay the band out for their really good contract. They paid them for a second album that they didn't even make. Friends in Danger charted at number 25 back in Australia in the ARIA charts, which is okay. But this was 1996, and bands like UMI, Silverchair, Powderfinger, Spiderbait and Regurgitator were all releasing top 5 albums. Magic Dirt were kind of missing their chance. But they carried on. A compilation of their two early EPs were released in the US and Europe, and Magic Dirt travelled to Europe for some shows. In 1997, they became the third Australian band to perform appeal sessions in the 90s, after Smudge and Even As We Speak. A second album was released in Australia only, called Young and Full of the Devil, it was released in 1998 on Agogo. It charted at exactly number 100 in the ARIA charts. It's actually very rare to chart at exactly 100. It's also not very good. The band embarked on side projects and their future looked uncertain. As the 90s drew to a close, the band had a couple of acclaimed EPs, two albums that failed to hit, no songs in the Triple J Hottest 100 ever, some big supports, and that was that. And that's when I probably thought... That was it for Magic Dirt. By that time, they had fallen away. They just didn't seem to have made it. I loved Life Was Better, but even for me, where I had a steady diet of listening to the radio and going to festivals and all-age gigs, it felt like Magic Dirt had disappeared. Then, in 2000, Magic Dirt released a single, Dirty Jeans. It felt like it came out of nowhere. Here's Magic Dirt with Dirty Jeans. You're in ordinary boy and that's the way I like you on a train in the corner with a mind numbing headache when I last night with only one night had to let you know that you're beautiful and you make me go even if 
Suddenly, here was a catchy rock song. It was cool, full of attitude and inventive. Why write a second verse when the first one is so good? But it still sounded great on the radio. The vocals were clear, and they worked with an international producer, Phil Vanal, who had recent success with bands like Placebo. Gone were the long, long guitar jams. Most interesting of all was that Dirty Jeans was released on Warner Music Australia, a major label. It was a big about face. The cries of selling out were there, but this was the year 2000 and the world had changed and pretty soon the Vines and Jet were also signing to major labels and it seemed like being rock and roll on a big stage was the new cool thing. It was a deliberate about face too. The band had found themselves at a dead end with no label, no manager and no prospects. They were at their lowest, so they decided, in their own perverse way, to rebel against their own worries and make something pop. As a band, they just weren't in the mood for depressing, dirty music anymore. Dirty Jeans is wonderful. It has that cheeky, repetitive structure. The lyrics are a rush of romance and desire in a fun, punk way. But mainly, it's the attitude. Melody, lyrics, sound, yeah, it has all that. But Dirty Jeans is an attitude song. Triple J and their audience loved it too, and it was Magic Dirt's first song to make the hottest 100, coming in at number 12 in the year 2000. The new approach went beyond the music. Finally, there was a Magic Dirt film clip that showed off the band, brightly lit, filmed on a set, and there was even some acting. On the cover of the album that that song came from, What Are Rock Stars Doing Today?, they looked like, well, a band. I wonder what would have happened if Magic Dirt had dirty jeans in 1996. At the very least, it would have been a mid-90s international one-hit wonder, like Sex and Candy or Flagpole Sitter or something. Instead, it became a hit only in Australia, but that seemed to be more manageable for a band that had been through the ringer. The album, What Are Rockstars Doing Today?, charted at number 35, still far from their peers, but they were back and a new audience discovered them, and it was the start of some of their most successful years. Two more albums on Warner followed, and then some more on their own indie label. Dean Turner who started the band with Adelita, died in 2009. The band still carries on, and it's incredible out of all the bands in the 90s, Magic Dirt, who seemed to break up every couple of years in the 90s, has stuck together till today. Magic Dirt probably won't be remembered for their work in the 90s as much as their later hits, but the story of Magic Dirt has so many elements that could only be Australia in the 90s. They came from regional Australia. They saw a quick rise. The world took notice, if only briefly, they got caught up in that whole indie versus major stuff. And on the surface, it's really easy to see what was so special about Magic Dirt. And that's Adelita. The other guys are great, but Adelita is very special. She came from the mold of Patti Smith or PJ Harvey. She sang, played a fiery guitar, and gave off all the confidence usually reserved for straight white men. Adelita would inspire a generation of female musicians in Australia, inspire them as a guitar player, a singer, and a woman. Adelita has gone on to release three solo albums, and Magic Dirt still tour. To end, here's another track from that fantastic Life Was Better EP, for my money their best release of the 90s. Here's Daddy by Magic Dirt.
Melman's The Meanies were experts at short, sharp punk rock with an emphasis on cartoony fun. The band formed in 1988, and the name was a reference to the Blue Meanies from the Beatles cartoon Yellow Submarine. But the bigger influence was The Ramones. And like The Ramones, The Meanies changed their surname to their band name. So the members of The Meanies in the classic era are Link Meanie, Wally Meanie, Dee Dee Meanie, and Ringo Meanie. When Wally later joined the band Even, people still called him Wally Meanie. To paraphrase Paul McCartney, there's no such thing as an ex-meanie. Known for their energetic shows, they were a huge live draw, especially for the all-age crowd, and appeared in many big festivals like the first few big day outs. Everyone in Melbourne loved them, and everyone outside of Melbourne knew they were big in Melbourne. I haven't talked that much about the punk scene of the 90s. There was a very strong scene built around all-age concerts across Australia. Triple J helped to build this new teenage audience that were into music, They were young, but they wanted to see bands. It became common for Triple J and punk bands to do their normal nighttime shows, then to do an all-age show on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. As the decade went on, there was venues with no bar that housed regular all-age venues. Recovery, the TV show, would later have an all-age gig guide. The rise of Triple J, which had no age filter, helped this scene immensely. Now... Those teenagers weren't going to fold their arms and admire the guitar styles or the intricate lyrics. Nope, they went to mosh, slam dance, see friends from other schools, and maybe pash someone cute. I loved the scene and I saw many punk bands as a 15-year-old in places like Manly PCYC. The bands I saw, like the Meanies, were very much the children of the Ramones. It's there in their short songs, the silly subject matter, and the cartoony artwork. See Hard-Ons and later Friends or Rom and then Nancy Vandal, Body Jar and all the rest. The Meanies were kind of there before the punk explosion that came later. They released a series of singles on the indie label Agogo. Like a lot of singles, just every few months another single with three or four short punk tracks. They were all later collected on the wonderfully titled compilation The Meanie of Life. One of the early hits was Gangrenous. Here's Gangrenous by The Meanies. about punk is that it travels. There's punk bands everywhere and they seem to have an endless thirst for this stuff. So the band quickly found themselves with some international attention from international punk-minded labels. Their live shows led to some epic supports including Nirvana, Lemonheads and Pearl Jam. They made an early album in 1992 called Come On and See on a Go-Go, but it was part of a torrent of releases with seven singles and three EPs all coming out within a year or so either side of that album. There's a 1992 EP called In Search Of, which outsold Come On and See. Most of these releases were licensed to European and Japanese labels. In this time of the early 90s, the Meanies were the biggest band on a go-go before Magic Dirt and Spiderbait came along. In 1994, they released 10% Weird, the album that they would be known for and one of the best Australian punk albums ever. It was recorded in Seattle with Conrad Uno, who had many credits to his name like Mudhoney and the Young Fresh Fellows. In 1994, he would also produce the debut album by the Presidents of the United States, which sold around 4 million copies worldwide. 10% Weird was pop-punk sounding great. The album is 14 songs and 29 minutes long. Most songs come in at around the 2-minute mark. The title track was the one that got given the film clip, 
which is partially filmed outside a GoGo Records in Melbourne. Here's 10% Weird by The Meanies. It's surprising to me that 10% Weird didn't chart. It's a big album. Maybe you had to be 15 to get into it. I'm not sure what a 25-year-old gets out of the meanies. As punk bands do, they hit the road and toured for 18 months straight, like they had been doing for about the five years before that. After one too many shocking shows, including one in Wollongong in 1996, the band decided to have a break. And that was kind of the end of the golden era of the meanies. Wally was already in the band even, and Link, who was the main songwriting force, started a new band called Tomorrow People. In that band, we found out that Link's actual name was Link McLennan. It was more pop than punk, with shimmery guitars, bright vocals, and even a bit of psychedelia. They only made one album, which they released in 1997, called Shining. It was, of course, released on a go-go. The first single was called Proof. Here's Tomorrow People with Proof. The Meanies actually got back together around 1998 to support their friends in the Japanese band 5678s, who would later have a big hit with their song Woohoo when it was used in the Tarantino film Kill Bill. On the back of that, Link wrote songs for a third Meanies album, but Ogogo had folded by then and no one locally wanted to put it out. They continued the gig, but the days of a single or an EP every few weeks and years on the road were behind them. D.D. Meany and later member Taz have both sadly passed away. Jaws Meany joined in 2008, and that has been the Meanies ever since. And then in 2015, 21 years after 10% Weird, the Meanies finally released album number three. Called It's Not Me, It's You, it saw Link write straight ahead punk songs again. The single was called Punch and Air. Here's Punch and Air by the Meanies. Another album, Desperate Measures, has followed in 2020. So that's two albums in the 90s and two albums since. And they still play, although Link doesn't quite hang off the ceiling as much anymore. But an incredibly energetic live show is still part of what makes the meanies the meanies. In a way, the band missed a bigger punk scene that would have come along at the end of the 90s, led by bands like, I mentioned, Frenzel Rom, Body Jar and The Living End. But they cut the path that a lot of those bands followed. 
They worked incredibly hard and were always loyal to the all-ages scene. After so many releases and shows, it's no wonder they burnt out kind of early. Also, I love all the Meanies album covers and single covers from the 90s till now, and they were almost all drawn by Link. On record, the album 10% Weird seems to overshadow everything else. At 29 minutes, there's not a wasted moment. Here's another track from that classic. Here's Ton of Bricks by The Meanies. New Faces was a very long-running Australian TV show started in the 60s and it ended in the 80s. It was revived for some reason in 1992 on a new channel, Channel 10. Some famous people have passed through the show over the decades, including Paul Hogan, John Williamson, Keith Urban and Peter Andre. It was a safe, prime-time family show. We still have those kinds of talent shows now, but the production values have blown through the roof. It's still the same though, a show that takes so-called ordinary Australians and dangles some plastic idea of fame in front of them. Doled out one after another, I'm sure people laughed at these people as it force-fed cheap emotion to the masses. In 1992, a young woman with the name Max Sharam appeared on New Faces. She had shaved sides to her head, but had otherwise unkempt long hair that looked a bit like dreadlocks, big colourful makeup, and a one-piece silver jumpsuit. In 1992, she was safely marketing herself as alternative. Oh, and she was wielding an acoustic guitar that she was strumming. And then she sang. Here's Max Sharam on the TV show New Faces. Shuram had always been deeply musical. She was also a bohemian at heart, having backpacked through Europe, busking. Somehow that led to her appearing in an Italian opera and fronting a Japanese band. She was open to odd opportunities and had the bravery to say yes. She returned to Australia in the early 90s, dabbled in stand-up and wrote her own songs. She had raw talent in her powerful voice and perhaps it was her busking background that trained her to be not afraid of getting in front of any audience and proving herself. She actually appeared in TV before, singing a song on Hey Hey It's Saturday's Red Faces. It's a horrible segment from a TV variety show where people come on, perform, and some celebrities judged you. The Red in the segment's name was Red Simons. 
He was the lead guitar player for the band Skyhooks, the band that was the first song played on Double J when it launched and the first Australian cover stars for Rolling Stone. However, he became a sort of primetime mainstream shock jock by the 90s. He gave Max Sharam 5 out of 10, made fun of her and failed to recognise the things that were alternative and challenging about her the way that he once was. Max Sharam, for her part, wasn't put off. New faces came along and she applied. She just didn't see why people like her couldn't appear on TV and get their chance. Why the alternative, music-driven, bohemian life that she was living was not represented on TV or the mainstream. She wanted to challenge the boundaries and make a point. So she went on, got to the finals and got in front of a huge TV audience. Oh, and she was playing her own song called Coma. And she was 23 at the time. What really shines with Max Sharam is that voice. It had incredible power and years of singing meant that she knew how to wield it. The record companies started to call after new faces. I would guess that more than a couple just went, we can sell that voice no matter how she looked. Signing a deal was a long affair. No one really knew what Max Sharam was like as an artist. And she didn't really know either. Sony was the first to try and sign her, but she ultimately went with another major label, Warner Music. New Faces was 1992. Her first EP wasn't released until 1994. The delay was frustrating for Max, but she wasn't going to compromise. Two years after that New Faces performance, Max Sharam released Coma on an EP. Here is the studio version of Coma by Max Sharam. was a success in both commercial and alternative worlds. It made it to number 14 in the ARIA charts and number 8 in the Hottest 100 of 1994. Coma was everywhere that summer. Coma was produced by Daniel Denham, who produced Frente's Clunk EP, and Nick Mainsbridge, who produced Rackat's Blind Love. And together, they managed to give it that mix of acoustic indie quirk of Frente and mixed with the big fuzzy choruses of Rackat. Coma was given a shiny, expensive-looking film clip as well that really focused on Max. It was all set to launch a new star. An album followed, but it was not released until seven months after Coma. Called A Million Dollar Girl, it peaked at number nine in the ARIA charts and would ultimately become a gold record. Two more singles followed, Be Firm and a cover of Lay Down, originally by Woodstock-era folky Melanie. The album was nominated for eight arias, but only won one in the end for best cover art. Also from A Million Dollar Girl, here's Max Sharam with Lay Down. Let in. Inside- 
She did lots of touring, including a tour of Europe and the US where the album was released. But there was a reason why things took so long for Max. Between her TV appearance and her first single, between her first single and her album, at every step, she does what she wants and she was up against a corporate world that doesn't deal that well with change and quirkiness. That was hard enough in Australia where she had some profile. Landing in the US and almost starting from scratch and not wanting to compromise, Max's pop career stalled. Sometime around the late 90s, she gave up. But as expected, she went on to do her own thing. She did acting, soundtracks, performances, art, studies, travel. She would turn up in places like theatre productions and game shows. She supported Cindy Lauper for an Australian tour in 2014 and independently released an EP called The God's Envy. It was her first new pop songs in around 20 years. What do you do with a problem like Max Sharam? She had a mainstream pop star moment, but she was always too weird to be a commercial pop star. In another world, she signed to a sympathetic indie label that helped her create a discography of beautiful songs in her vision. But instead, she jumped to the big leagues for one album and never made another. On the other hand, Max's pop star moment bought her the fame and cred to do almost anything else. There sadly wasn't a lot more music, but she did do a classic album show for A Million Dollar Girl in 2017. And who knows what might take Max's fancy next. She does her own thing. To end, here's Be Firm, another big single from Maturam's only album, first released in 1995. I Melbourne's Rebecca's Empire had a hit with their debut 1994 single, Atomic Electric. The band's namesake was Rebecca Barnard, who sang their wonderful songs and seemed to appear cheerfully in all their album covers and posters and things. The band Rebecca's Empire started as a duo with her then-partner Shane O'Mara. Barnard had played in lots of bands and was an experienced session musician. She had appeared in TV show backing bands and sang with people like Kate Sobrano and Stephen Cummings in the 80s. O'Mara was a talented multi-instrumentalist and producer. They were very well known in the Melbourne scene, but then Barnard started to write her own songs and Rebecca's Empire was the outlet. They were joined on bass and drums by Bill McDonald and Pete Luscombe. They signed to Eternity Recordings, an imprint started by Polygram Publishing. Publishers were out there signing songwriters and it made sense to give those songwriters more exposure by forming an imprint. In the end, Rebecca's Empire would be the only band of any success on Eternity. A 
Atomic Electric, that first song, was taken from an EP of the same name and reached number 38 in the Triple J Hottest 100 of 1994. Here's Atomic Electric by Rebecca's Empire. One in a million That's what I tell myself Oh, oh. Atomic electric This feeling it comes and goes Did you know You're in the colors of the sky The air is written with your name You're one in a million I'm looking at you from this far away Did you know You're standing out in the crowd You're playing guitar really There was something very sweet and pop about Rebecca's Empire. It was a nice contrast to dour grunge. The guitars could get heavy, but they sounded sweet as well. Rebecca Barnard had a wonderful voice, but she was a different type of female front person. She wasn't a wild beast unleashed. She was just kind of cool and sort of seemed like she could be your friend. There was an approachableness about Rebecca's Empire. A second EP followed called Take a Look at Happiness, and it featured another Triple J hit, Empty. The band were working out how loud they could crank their guitars while still maintaining a catchy pop spark. They sounded great and Rebecca looked great. Their songs were good, so it was with little surprise that Polydor, who owned Eternity Recordings, would decide to put some money into the band and sign them up directly. They made a debut album, 1996's Way of All Things. Atomic Electric and Empty were both included, as well as new singles like So Rude, In Deep and the title track. He is so rude by Rebecca's Empire. Well, you shouldn't talk to her like that. I wouldn't talk to her like that if I were you. You're so careless. You got it jealous. I wouldn't talk to her. So Rude made the hottest 100 of 1996 at number 57. Way of All Things, the title track, made it to 94 in the hottest 100 of 1997. The only other Australian bands to appear in the hottest 100 four years in a row in the 90s were Regurgitator, Powderfinger, The Whitlams and UMI. That's the company that Rebecca's Empire keeps. Way of All Things, the album, made it to number 78 in the regular charts and they were nominated for Breakthrough Artist at the Arias. The album was pretty big in the Triple J world and things looked good for the band. Rebecca and Shane made enough money as well that they built a home studio which they would call Yikesville. Rebecca and Shane had a baby just before that debut album came out. In indie rock, you don't get maternity leave. They tried to slow down and take some time off, doing only the occasional gig. And by doing that it seems that Polydor lost interest and the band was dropped. A second album followed in 1999 before the band broke up. 
It was called Welcome and it was released on Festival Records and it was recorded in their home studio, Yikesville. But Rebecca and Shane had creative and personal problems and Rebecca wanted to spend more time at home. There wasn't anything near the support from Festival as there was from Polydor and 1999 the world was changing again. Welcome didn't chart and none of the songs made the hottest 100 and the band broke up. But Rebecca didn't stop. After the empire fell, she had a varied career as a musician. She made solo albums, but has also collaborated and performed with lots of people from Paul Kelly to Tim Rogers, a lot of people from Melbourne at least. Shane O'Mara continued to produce, including great albums like Car Tape by Lisa Miller, also albums by Paul Kelly and Tim Rogers. You know, Melbourne people. He still records in Yikesville. Shane and Rebecca aren't together anymore, but they still occasionally work together. Rebecca's Empire were a funny one for me. I love those big hits and have the album Way of All Things, which just seemed like one of those big albums that you had to go and own at the time. But they weren't young punks thrashing it out on guitars. They were talented working musicians that probably would have done something in any decade. But it was the 90s, so they turned up the distortion pedals and went Triple J. They were cool and I loved them and they had their moment, but it didn't last. But neither did the scene which Shane and Rebecca would outgrow and outlast. Here's my favourite Rebecca's Empire song. From that second EP and included on Way of All Things, here's Empty by Rebecca's Empire. Let's have a look at the year-end alternative charts. It's 1994 and the charts were just full of international acts. 1994 is the year that alternative bands flooded everywhere. But also, only a top 40 list was published compared to a top 100. So on the website I'll list the top 10 Australian alternative singles of 94 and the top 10 Australian alternative albums of 94. But let's just talk about the list for a second. Over in singles, Tomorrow by Silverchair is the number one. It's also the number one Australian alternative single of the decade. Incredible that Tumbleweed comes in at number two with Daddy Longlegs. Magic Dirt, UMI, Meanies and Frente all make the chart. Over in albums, what is interesting is how many one-hit wonder bands had albums in the charts. People were buying the albums of bands that had big singles. Albums from Crash Test Dummies, Helmet, The Breeders and more make the list. Of the Australian albums, the number one is the compilation for the first Triple J Hottest 100, which I'm counting as Australian. After that comes UMI's debut Sound As Ever, which shows that they were very much acclaimed from the beginning. Some big albums from 1993 carry over into 1994, like The Cruel Seas The Honeymoon Is Over and Sad But True by Texton and Charlie. And there's only eight Australian albums in the whole top 40. 
So to end, here's the second highest selling Australian alternative single from 1994. Here's Tumbleweed with their very silly Daddy Long Legs. Okay, you've made it to the end bit. This is where I do the stuff about support and other things about Just Ace. Every week, I highlight something different. It's the second last episode of the season, so if I'm going to talk about the way to support the podcast to you, who have listened up to now, and you've listened to the outros, then it's simply, tell a friend. Tell all your friends. Help spread the word. Firstly, you're here so I assume you like it. So tell someone because every report about podcasts says that 99.99% of people discover podcasts because a friend recommends it to them. Podcasts do not work without word of mouth. Then there's just the story I'm trying to tell. I'm being a bit selfish, but I feel like these stories are disappearing and I want them to be kept alive. I want more people to hear about the bands and the decade and what happened here in Australia, not just in the US and the UK. So help spread the word. Not just to your mid-40s mates. Younger, older, overseas, wherever, history needs to be alive. If you're feeling more generous, then please check out the links in the description for more ways to support me, like on Patreon, or the tipping service Buy Me A Coffee, or Buy Something From The Red Bubble Shop. No-cost ways to support me include leaving the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts, sharing links online, and following me on social media. Also check out the webpage for show notes, playlists, mailing lists, and a lot more information. I'm everywhere on Just Ace 90s, which is Just Ace 90s. Again, all the links are in the description. Okay, next week, it's our last episode of the season and a very, very different kind of episode. It's the story of a kid who got to do something special.